Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Uh, welcome to Everything Cooperative. It's beautiful Thursday morning. Sun's up in D.C. And we have Dania Davey on the line with us this morning. Good morning, Dania. Good morning. And where are you? What part of the world are you in today? I am in Marietta, Georgia today. All right. Well, the weather normally is better down there than up here in terms of warmer. And so you are the director of land retention and advocacy for the Federation. And I want to talk to you about that, but I really want to first start talking about that this is Black History Month that we're celebrating, and the theme this year is health and wellness, and the importance of health and wellness for the black community. So I want to talk to you about that first. So what is your educational background? So let me start with saying that I used to be on a Black History Month quiz bowl as a child. So Black History Month is a really, a really big uh, time of year for me and my family. And I love studying about Black history. In college, I actually double majored in Africana studies and community health because I was really dis interested in racial disparities and health outcomes. Well, you're perfect for this conversation today, then. <laughs> community health. Uh, and racial outcome. Okay, so what are the outcomes of race, the, the determinants of, not race, the determinants of health? So there are different factors that are considered the social determinants of health, and those include things like economic stability, education, access to, to quality education, access to health care, access to uh, the things that, you know, the, the things that allow you to make good choices. So the, the things that are in your community, the built environment. And I think a lot of times people focus on individual choices, but policy, social policy really does play a huge role in health outcomes. So what are some individual choices that people talk about? I already know them because I've been fighting weight all of my life, but okay. <laughs> Exactly. So so weight is a great example because, you know, we hear about racial disparities in terms of, you know, the, the diet related illnesses. So that kind of puts the focus on the individual choices, people not eating healthy fruits and vegetables, people choosing instead processed, fast, quick and easy foods uh, that are heavily uh chemically uh, derived foods, food products. And I think there's a lot of emphasis on individual choices and less so the, the things that are a part of our built environment, a part of our communities, whether or not you have access to safe places to walk, whether or not you have access to things that are things that you could buy affordably to have healthy food in your home. So I got that most of the time we talk about individual choices and that is how much you weigh, what you eat, whether you drink alcohol, take drugs, smoke tobacco, all of those things that you, individuals can choose to do or not do. Okay, so now you're talking about the social determinants, environmental determinants, there's other kinds of things. So can you speak a little bit more like, like what is that when you talk about community health? What are those social Absolutely. determinants? And, and policy, policy making, yeah, okay. Yeah. Go ahead. Where would you like me to start? <laughs> Policy. Would Policy. Great question, because the Farm Bill is coming up for 2023, and that is the second largest omnibus bill after our defense bill. And that Farm Bill affects just about everything related to our access to food. And it's one thing that I don't think our community gets a lot of information around. Um, it's something that I think people think of just farmers being a part of the Farm Bill. But those are the types of major policy decisions that are made that affect our access to healthy food on a community scale. So is that example like um, the lunch programs in school? Exactly. So, you know, all of the different waiver programs that, uh, you know, whether or not the, the vouchers that you have 
you know, food stamp type programs allow you to use the use those uh, those points at a farmer's market or at an organic market like Whole Foods or whether you're just limited to a local, you know, gas station bodega place where you might only be able to get milk and bread, some of the basic staples, but not necessarily the things that are the most nutritious for for a, a healthy diet. So I like to talk about uh, food co-ops because that's their food co-ops are one of the first ones that start talking about these natural kinds of things like putting measurements on the food that you buy so you know what's in that content. Um, so going and finding your food co-op and buying from there, getting nutritional foods. Okay, so you have this, you have policy making, you have social factors, and the social factors are in healthcare? So, yeah, so social factors can be, that's probably where racism comes into play when we think about racial disparities in health outcomes. So there've been, there's been research that have shown that if someone experiences uh, an incident where they're being racially discriminated against, but they necessarily respond with a lot of anger, they might remain calm. But when you study their cardiovascular system, their heart rate, their, their pulse, uh, their blood pressure, you see that there is an elevated uh, stress response when someone experiences a stressor like that. So there are ways in which an environmental encounter with someone who is enacting racism towards you can uh, elevate your stress response. And stress response leads to inflammation. It can exacerbate any pre-existing conditions, any of the longer term, uh, you know, chronic illnesses, almost everything, you know, allergies are exacerbated by stress. So those are some of the ways in which just walking around as a person of color, you can encounter and experience things in your day-to-day that can exacerbate any underlying or pre-existing health conditions without you making any personal choices at all. So you say walking around while black, driving (laughs) while black. I remember the first time I got pulled over. And I was doing 20 miles an hour on a New Jersey turnpike. It, it was a Sunday afternoon. Nobody was moving. They pulled me over. Yeah, last weekend, a girlfriend and I were going for a walk. We were actually walking to a coffee shop, and a cop pulled us over <laughs> and basically asked us what we were doing in that neighborhood and if we lived there. Um, and, and really, there, you know, there was no reason for us to be stopped by the police. We were literally walking while black. Uh, and then we, you know, we had a conversation walking back to our cars about that really only happened to us because we were black and happened to be doing something healthy. We were going for a walk, and right? A, so we were making a healthy choice. But, you but were then in we a, got the stress. You were in, a, in, a, in an affluent neighborhood. Why are you in this neighborhood? Makes me think that. We were we were in probably a, a, a white <laughs> neighborhood. Um, I, I wouldn't say affluent because that's regardless of race. But I think that this particular neighborhood was predominantly white. Okay. Walking while black, driving while black, um, watching birds while black, sleeping mm-hmm. while black. Any kind of thing can cause the stress to come up or cause you death. Jogging right. in the wrong neighborhood. Well, but going to the store and getting some candy and walking back. So are you going to the coffee shop? All of these are stressors. And it's amazing that we don't even understand how that stress affects us because we may take it like, huh, it's just everyday kinds of things. We're black in America. That happens. How do you how do they measure that stress on your health, on your heart? Is there such a thing? So in studies and research settings, they will kind of create the conditions by which someone experiences that. And then there'll be scientists that are there or doctors that are there measuring the cardiovascular response. But I think on a societal level, we see that showing up primarily in our racial disparities and health outcomes. Because when you control for things like someone's education level, someone's, you know, income, and you see that there are persisting racial disparities, that kind of indicates that there's something more than individual choice, that's something more than one individual neighborhood. That's a structural institutional problem when you see those persistent racial disparities in health outcomes, which we see in just about every type of illness or disease you can measure. Uh, there's, there are those persistent racial disparities in health outcomes. So in my family, it is diabetes and hypertension, and next is um, alcoholism or drug addictions would be in there also. And I think they all play on each other in terms of poor health 
conditions. But um, at 55, I think they diagnosed me with diabetes, and I was angry because I started working on choice. I started working on what I was eating and exercise and all of that at probably at age 25. And so I'd been working on this for 30 years, and I still turned out to be diabetic. And I had the experience, you know, I'm a personal trainer, I'm a marathoner, I'm very active, and I have terrible high blood pressure. I'm always being monitored for some diet-related illness. So I think some of that is related to our original diet, our ancestral diet, and not having access to those ways of knowing and those ways of healing and restoring health within our bodies. Uh, But then I think in terms of people using food and drugs and alcohol to self-medicate, the mental health stressors that are imposed on them by being black people in America. So they're, they're, they're multifaceted. It's definitely partially some choice and some ways in which we've been separated from our ancestral knowledge and, and ways of living. But then I also think that there's this very significant way in which environmental factors, even, you know, the air that we breathe, depending on what part of a city that you live in, the pollution levels are going to be very, very different. And those always follow uh, a racial trajectory. And so this, these problems are things that we have to be more mindful of as Black folks, because we have to be on it. We have, if I wasn't Working out as much as I am, I would probably have to be on medication for my high blood my high blood pressure. Um, so we have that extra pressure as well. So that that's extremely important because there's seven children in my family, and five of which died before they reached the age of sixty five mm. for all kinds of different reasons. My father did not make sixty five. My mother did at seventy seven. But I've made it to 74. I'll be 75 this year. And I think the reason, the difference is that I was doing all of that work. Yeah, I still got diabetes, but probably at a later age in life. And I had already started doing the kinds of things I needed to do to keep those numbers down. So there there are personal choices you can do. All of these things, I think personal choice is kind of small in terms of what affects the health and we're talking about social determinants. We haven't even talked about physical determinants. We've talked about environmental Absolutely. determinants. All of these different things go into to health. And uh, being black in America, we just talk about walking while black, driving while black, all of these different things. But it's all of these th- other things that's going around that affects our health, which ends up being when you talk about what's the likelihood that you, how long will you live? How long will you live? Okay. Life expectancy. That's what I'm looking at. Exactly. I mean, genetics play a role when we think about what we've inherited from our enslaved Africans who whose bodies were abused. Women and black women's reproductive systems were abused. And so that results in a lot of black women having very serious reproductive organ health issues. Today? Uh, and we were t- in, in the modern time, okay. we are still affected by those because of genetics. And they are also perpetrated against us by social policies. But I think a lot of the emphasis we get is about personal choice. And that is only a part of the picture because genetics and environmental and policy factors have a much more broad scale impact on us as a group of people. Wow, so tell us uh, about the physical determinants of health. So like we've discussed physical activity and those types of choices like, you know, living in a neighborhood where you can ride a bike or go for a walk, those things are going to reduce your stress levels, reduce your cardiovascular response to stressors, reduce your weight, uh, which, you know, can mitigate hypertension and, and diabetes symptoms as well. Well, we're going to take our first break. Thank you, Dania. Uh, this is exciting conversation about health and being able to live a long, productive life. And we're going to come back and talk more about health, but we're going to get into what you do at the Federation and how co-ops play a role in this health outcomes. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. Your news talk station. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Co-op. We have Dania Davey on the line with us this morning. She is 
She deals with land <laughs> with the Federation of Southern Co-ops, but her background is in health and Afro, Afro-American studies, Africana studies. Um, so we've been talking about health since this year, the Black for Black History Month. It is the importance of health and wellness to us black folk. And so we've been talking about all of the determinants. And, you know, it really struck me, Dania, that uh, when COVID hit, they talked about pre-existing conditions. And I knew it was going to hit our community really, really harsh, um, this this COVID thing, because of pre-existing conditions. But those pre-existing conditions are, are the what we've been talking about, these determinants. Before we talk about COVID or anything there, I wanted to go back to these physical determinants. What are the kinds of things in a community helps to increase the health or deteriorate the health? And in, in our case, more often it deteriorates the health, the physical conditions. That's a great question, and it kind of ties into my journey from community health to the Federation. But the built environment plays a significant role in our health quality. And so when you're thinking about the built environment, you're thinking about roads, transportation, the actual physical health of a building. For example, if you're in a rural community, um, you may not have safe uh, transportation options to get you to a health clinic or a hospital in case of a health emergency. Um, You may not have safe uh, pathways to walk um, in, in your area and as well as the structural integrity of the homes or the buildings that children attend school in, they might not be um, uh, up to the standards that can make sure, you know, the ventilation systems in the buildings, you know, what types of paint was used um, when that building was was being um, put up. And so those are the types of things that we see, you know, folks have increased, increased asthma, increased allergies, increased respiratory illness as a byproduct of the, the health of the housing stock that they can afford and have access to. So those are the ways in which the, the physical built environment, um, while you're sleeping and breathing and eating, can be detrimentally impacting your, your pre-existing conditions, causing conditions that would make you more susceptible to death when faced with an illness like COVID. And that gets to Flint, Michigan with the lead in the water. Absolutely, okay. absolutely. Built conditions. And that lead can really play a lot of havoc for a young person their whole life if they get lit. Then affecting the brain, yeah, it's terrible. Even like if you're if you live in a, a home that your landlord won't do proper pest management, uh, and then there are, you know, pests in and around the home. We know a lot of children who suffer from asthma end up hospitalized uh, because of things like, you know, pest management, poor oh, pest management. Roaches and rats. Okay, I got you. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> okay. yeah. they, you know, it's, women are mainly scared of rats and stuff, but it's the fear <laughs> that when they, when they, leave their fecal matter around the roaches and the rats it just creates all kinds of havoc in the system yeah exactly um, i mean rats carry diseases rats like carried epi- you know pandemics around the world so we have ways of knowing uh how to keep ourselves healthy and whole um and then it just seems that policies and practices that won't acknowledge our basic humanity there was a study done on uh residents in medical school and they actually thought black women had a, a stronger ability to respond to pain. So their pain management that they would prescribe if they had a patient that was a black woman uh, saying that she has a, a, you know, a level five pain would be less than a white woman saying that she has level five pain because these medical students genuinely thought that black people had a better ability or capacity to suffer and endure pain. And that's um, those are those are the people that are practicing medicine, about to start practicing medicine, having those views. Uh, And I think that we really need to address in medical education as well as policymaking the importance of of the role that those things play in our lives. So you you talked about the different kinds of things that happens if in in a physical environment that can happen. But there's one. Um, I heard a gentleman say that a house is to a family 
what a bowl is to baking a cake. And he went on to say that if you're baking a cake and you crack open two eggs and you don't have a bowl to put it in, you just crack them and and blah, and then you put some sugar on it and you put some flour on it and vanilla and whatever, all those ingredients. And he said, what do you end up with? Mm. And the audience said, a mess. He said, that's exactly what you have if you have a family without a home. You Mm. end up with a mess. There's no place to, there's no safety there's no place to do the homework. There's no place to have meals where you can talk. The enclosure of a family to grow a family, you don't have it, and you end up with all of these determinants to good health. Right, and we even see it. We saw it during COVID where, you know, information around testing sites, information around uh, where you could get a vaccination, where there were hospitals that had open beds, those were by and large accessible online. And we have communities that are housing insecure or homeless, and they don't have access to internet. In the rural communities, a lot of people don't have access to the internet. And so there are ways in which uh, there's all this modernization that's supposed to be giving people better access to information that can help them make choices around their health. And there are broad, broad, huge parts of our country that just are, are being left behind and completely left out of that progress. So that is exactly correct, particularly the broadband issue. And the final one that I want to talk to you about or get you to hear talk to us about is what about just having ability to get to a doctor, to, to get to Absolutely. a hospital? Absolutely. And, and, you know, during COVID, another big push was around telemedicine. And that goes into the same um, issue. But, you know, one of the things that the Federation has as a part of our housing development in, in Alabama is a community health clinic. And we've been doing a lot of work to think about how to have cooperatively owned clinics that are local and accessible uh, that that folks can, you know, walk to that's walking distance because transportation is a huge issue in rural communities. But then also we need medical providers who are willing to reside in communities that are underserved and uh, being excluded from access to fundamental health. That's COVID really highlighted all the gaps in our health system and our public health mechanisms that resulted in the, the death rates and discrepancies and disparities that we all saw as a nation. Well, so too often health clinics and hospitals are owned by private individuals and they're there to make money. Okay. And that's the problem with the capitalistic model. They're there to make money. Providing health is a side effect. Uh, Helping people is a side thing. We're in a co-op. People come first, planet comes second, and then profit. In the capitalistic model, Profit comes first, profit comes second, and profit comes third. Still three P's, but a totally different focus. And I've been and to our clinic. Go ahead. Go oh, ahead. I was just going to say, and our clinic has now, you know, uh, fitness equipment because our clinic is really focused on making those healthy choices that you have control over to improve your odds if you are diagnosed with something that you might not have as much control over. And so the clinic is really responsive because it's community owned and community decision-making goes into what type, what does health mean to our community? That's a very different model than just wanting to get prescriptions from doctors. There's a, there's a model that non-cooperative health facilities have a very paternalistic relationship where doctors just dole out recommendations and dole out medications. But when a community that has a cooperatively owned clinic, those decisions are going to be a lot more responsive to the ways in which that community envisions health and manages their health outcomes. So the patients own the clinic. And so all of the policies around the, what the, what the clinic does is what the patients say the clinic does. And so most patients, rural, urban, poor, black, white, rich, they want to say, I don't want to get, I don't want to get sick. <laughs> what must I do not to get sick? Okay. <laughs> don't wait till I get sick and say, take these pills and come back in two weeks if they don't work. I don't want to get sick. Okay. Uh, so that's what the clinic, and there's one in Madison, Wisconsin, a clinic owned by the patients and the one that, and I visited the one in Epps, Alabama, and the people walk right outside of their backyard and there's a pathway you can walk to the clinic. Phenomenal. Absolutely. It's, it's almost like for me, uh, that's what really community economic wellness looks like. It looks like a whole community 
taking charge of the, the decisions that benefit the entire community. Um, and that, that eliminates this, this transportation issue. It eliminates this dependency on uh, insurance, which a lot of people don't have access to, and also the dependency on prescription medication, which a lot of people just cannot afford. Uh, and so I think that cooperatives can solve a lot of the problems that we saw highlighted through our health disparities during COVID. Phenomenal, phenomenal. The community right around your clinic is low income, probably very low, because they're a project-based Section 8 community, so it's very low income, uh, the people. And then the, to have good to great health clinic, is, it can be done. Yeah. Absolutely. And you all are doing it. Do you have any sense that you would make any, uh, create any other clinics in the other 13 states that the Federation are in? I think it's a great aspiration, and there are things that we want to do to expand the services of our existing clinic. I think that the future of of, of America, what we've learned from this COVID pandemic, is that cooperatives are going to solve a lot of the local rural, rural problems and urban problems. But uh, our focus is on, you know, using the models, the successful models, and trying to replicate those in underserved communities wherever we have a footprint. We'll be right back. Uh, that's a great place. We have the right footprint to get good health outcomes. We'll be right back. We're going to talk more about what the Federation is doing and the farmers to create good health for black folk. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. We have Dania Davey on the uh, line with us this morning. She's a director of land retention and advocacy for the Federation of Southern Co-ops. We've been talking about the health outcomes in black communities particularly, in the U.S. overall. But we're going to go and talk about the Federation of Southern Co-ops. Dana, can you give us a brief history of the Federation? Sure. I love talking about the Federation's history, and I think it's very timely in Black History Month to celebrate the Federation because what it represents is coming at the intersection of the Black cooperative development movement and the civil rights movement. And thinking of 22 cooperatively owned Black owned businesses, thinking about another path, another way uh, that, that can have us take control over our community resources, have ownership decision making over our resources and not relying on the government to come up with those solutions for us. And so these 22 cooperative owned businesses came together and decided that they wanted to, you know, expand cooperative businesses throughout the South as a way to improve black wealth and community ownership over local resources. Okay. And that was in 1967, if our memory goes correctly, right. right in the height of the civil rights movement. John mm -hmm. Lewis was very, uh, much a part of that. Um, so how many co-ops are there now? There were 22 to start with. Oh, that's a great question. There, there are hundreds now because uh, most of our cooperatives are credit unions and farmer cooperatives. But we're in states from South Carolina all the way across to Texas. And we're, we're constantly adding new cooperatives. Our most recent uh, cooperative that's, that's being developed is in Texas, and it's a Fisher Folk cooperative to, to give the Fisher Folk control over dock space and, and the resources that they need for their livelihood. So we have all different types of cooperatives that are members of the Federation, although we're most known for our farmer cooperatives. Okay, so... How many acres of land did blacks own in 1920 or approximately? <laughs> so in, in the, at the height of black land ownership, that was around 1910, there were about 15 million acres of black owned land, according to the U.S. Census of Agriculture. And how much now? And by the 1992 Census of Agriculture, there were approximately 2 million acres of black owned uh, land. So in 1920, we have about 15 million acres that we owned. And through that 72 years, we had lost 13 million acres. And then we only have 2 million acres. That's right. Okay. And uh, I understand there was a lot of ways that we lost it. Some of it 
most of which was based in discrimination and trying to take over whatever resources we had. There's some white person or persons that wanted what we had, and they would go and make policy or do things that they could get this land. So my introduction to this as a child was the movie Rosewood. I grew up in Florida. Uh, and so if you haven't seen that movie, I highly recommend that you see it. But when I was at the lynching memorial this summer, uh, I was just, you know, taken aback by all of the reasons that our, our community was devastated and decimated by the practice of white supremacist lynching. Uh, and one that really stood out to me was a family that was lynched because they refused to give up their farmland. So there was land theft. There were policies and practices put in place, uh, t tax foreclosure sales, other types of ways. When, when Shirley Sherrod's, uh, the new communities group, they were sold uh, toxic soil that would undermine the quality of the soil uh, on their land. And so uh, they're, they're just a whole host of very direct ways in which the land was stolen uh, and taken. And then there are other ways that we lost it um, through uh, lack of estate planning, which has resulted in the issue of heirs property. And a lot of families are, are not, have not been able to get the resources they need to property manage their heirs property. But we're hoping that with the emergence of the air property lending program through USDA, a lot more black families will get access to the necessary legal services uh, to be able to preserve and, and keep their land and their families. I'm back on Rosewood and lynching. Okay, you you going on. <laughs> okay. I, didn't, I didn't know if we wanted to dwell in that moment. You know, no, but it, it, it is just, but first, where is that, um, uh, you went to a, a memorial, lynching memorial, where is that? It was in, um, it was in Alabama. I'm trying to remember exactly where it was. I'll have to, you can put it in the, the, the chat notes when, when this becomes a podcast, okay. but um, it's, it's, a, it's a part of the, um, it's a part of a civil rights uh, it's west of Birmingham. Long. It's west of Birmingham because I wanted to go, but this past summer I didn't make it. This you summer, you, you really need to go. <laughs> you really need to go because when I think about Rosewood um, and I think about how just as a child, you know, I'm not originally from this country. I'm originally from Jamaica. And so that movie to me was one of the first things that really crystallized in my mind what African-American communities who tried to just provide for themselves. They really weren't looking to the government for any form of reparations. Uh, they weren't asking for any compensation or restoration from enslavement. They just really wanted to thrive and provide for their families. And yet uh, these white supremacist groups, um, many of which were sanctioned by police officers and mayors and, and local decision makers, uh, allowed for entire black communities to be completely decimated and devastated. And so that's, I think, part of why we in this modern era, my generation included, don't understand all the ways in which the Black Cooperative Development Movement had come up with a lot of the solutions that we actually need today. Mm -hmm. uh, and had they been given the opportunity to thrive, uh, we, we would see a very different wealth scenario than what we currently see in America. So the reason I, I wanted to go back to that was because when you go from 15 million acres of land that blacks own in 1920 down to 2 million in 1992, there are a lot of ways that they took this land. And whether it's Rosewood or Tulsa and taking over the whole communities and bombing it or lynching the whole family because they would not walk away or give away or sell their land. They just take it. And I'll take it by killing you. So that's what they did. Whenever we got something as black people that somebody white wanted, and the whole when you talk about policy making, everybody in the in the in the process in the legal process was online with let's take what the blacks own. Okay. And and this individualism concept, the American individualism, it just doesn't work for us as a black community. We we come from a, a history of community. <laughs> we come from a history of, of living in, in very socially, uh, you know, enmeshed lives. And that's part of why we are able to survive the levels of devastation and destruction. And so I think that was part of the tactic. It was to destabilize our communities 
so that we couldn't have those, we couldn't come up with those solutions to recovering from the enslavement issue. And, and I think that continues today uh, where whenever there's any discussion about the all of the ways in which Black work, uh, Black creativity, Black genius and brilliance built this country, there's always a, a quick uh, uh, effort to silence. I, I've just even noticed with this being Black History Month, there just hasn't been as much discussion as I like to see um, in celebration of all the rich and, and myriad ways in which we've made this country and we've made global wealth truly what it is. Um, I think that there are ways in which the the hero idea, this individual champion hero model is not the truth. The truth is there were so many individual black people that were working in collaboration and cooperation to create a new future. And I'm hopeful that we can learn from those lessons to build a better future for America. So talk about heroes. Two of my heroines that at the top of my heroine list is Shirley Sherrard. You mentioned her <laughs> and my mama. OK, but Shirley father got killed when she was 17 as a farmer over a cow. White man killed him over a cow. And she stayed and helped her mother. I met her mother this summer. I met her. Uh, I met Shirley once before, but her daughter and her granddaughter. So I met four generations. And Shirley's at the top of the list of of heroines that just keeps getting back up no matter what. And she said they will not keep me down. And I don't know if you saw the announcement this morning, but Shirley Gerard was, who's also one of my personal heroes, was just named to the Historic Equity Commission by the USDA. And so all of her brilliance and genius is going to play a huge role in shaping the ways in which this equity commission identifies opportunities to improve the services that USDA provides to our rural communities. So she continues uh, even even to the present day, even to today, to make black history. Yes, she's phenomenal and her family. Um, so we, we've got to talk about the American Rescue Act and... <laughs> building back better and the role that the Federation is playing in that for black farmers. So can you give us a, a, what's going on in that world? So as it stands, the American Rescue Plan Section 1005 lawsuit that was filed by white farmers saying that their constitutional rights were violated by there being a debt relief program for socially disadvantaged farmers and ranchers, the Federation filed a motion to intervene. Uh, the, the judge at the district court level in Texas denied our motion to intervene. We have since filed an appeal and a hearing on our appeal will take place in Louisiana on March 7th. And so we're using that uh, that appeal effort to educate and inform everyone on the reality that because there were members of ours and other socially disadvantaged groups and communities that relied on that debt relief, they're now finding themselves in another year. So last year they had issues with access to credit. And then this year they're facing issues with access to credit just because they relied on a law that was passed by Congress and signed by the president, um, telling them that they would have debt relief. And they're definitely in distress right now. They're facing economic ruin. Uh, there, this is going to be significant, has the potential of being a significant loss of land and black farmers from the food agricultural uh, landscape. And it's a really, really big issue that our entire community should be keeping our eye on because it's an indication of the fact that we saw a, a uprisings last year just saying that Black Lives Matter and all of those promises to address the racial inequities that we see at every level of our society are, are still, those promises are still not being kept. And uh, it's having direct impact on our farmers and their ability to produce that, that healthy food for their communities and our nation. So let me just get this. Black farmers have been discriminated against since America was formed and before. <laughs> okay. Blacks have been discriminated against. Black folk land has been taken. Some families, as you mentioned, have been lynched because they wanted their land. So you have all of this discrimination. So Biden comes along, his cabinet, and they say, look, with COVID, we've got to do a rescue plan for these people that have our society has discriminated against from beginning of our society. And then you have some white folks and they say, what? What do white people, what do they say? These farmers? So, 
So I just want to add to your summary that the COVID relief that was provided to farmers, the overwhelming, over 97% of that went to white farmers. Uh, and so part of American Rescue Plan Section 1005 was addressing that particular harm, not the longer history of, of black farmer discrimination. It was the actual issue of black farmers having limited access to the COVID relief during COVID uh, and the white farmers that I think are actually victims of white supremacy as well um, have been coached and encouraged to feel that uh, there's a zero sum game and whatever farmers of color receive has a net negative impact on what white farmers get. Okay, we've got to go to our next break, but <laughs> I can't. I can't even get my arms around this. You've been beating us up, stealing, lying, cheating, lynching us all of this time. Then somebody comes along and says, "We're going to help you because you were cheated on, beat it up, lynched during COVID." And then I get white folks just say, "Oh no, that's not fair. You can't give them anything." Nah, that makes absolutely no sense. But we're going to be back to talk about that. <laughs> 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 I want to talk to you about that and what happens post-COVID do you, do you see and what uh, Federation will do. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. This program has been on the air a little over eight years now, about eight and a half years. National Cooperative Bank has been our sponsor. Um a great friend, Chuck Snyder, passed away this past uh, year. And um, so we still mourn his passing, but the National Corp Bank has just been a great partner to us in this program and to the Federation of Southern Co-ops, going back with Ralph Page being on their board and now Cornelius Blanding. And they really uh, try to figure out ways that they can help black farmers and black cooperatives. Their mission is to help uh, American cooperatives and their members by providing uh, innovative financial services, and they do a really great job of that. And <clears throat> in this program, they have been our cheerleaders, not only providing financial support, uh, but helping us to figure out who could be on the program, different subject matters that are coming up and on the, on the uh, cutting edge. But we're going to get back to this federation what are you all you mentioned earlier the kinds of things that you are trying to do to intervene with I don't know white folks saying this is anti-discrimination or reverse discrimination or whatever they say okay which always floors me with all of the discrimination that they've done but I can understand it under the um, context of white supremacy they're not supposed to do anything for us or we talk about reparations earlier nothing and if we do get ahead, they're going to come in and try to take it. So that's just the norm. I, I don't understand that one. But what what are you? Can you tell us again what the federation is doing to help the black farmers and other farmers of color that have been discriminated against so long? So as I said, we're trying to intervene in this lawsuit so that we can ensure that the judge hears the evidence of the experiences that our members have faced in just trying to get access to credit so that they can provide for their families and their communities. And in addition to the litigation, we are also in, in lots of conversations with USDA and elected officials, educating them on the realities of the, the struggles and the challenges that black farmers continue to face. Uh, a lot of people are thinking that the Pigford litigation was kind of the panacea, the, the, the reparations, if you will, for black farmers enduring uh, institutional discrimination for decades and decades. And so one of the things that we're doing is a Pigford Research Project, the first ever of its kind, to really get a better sense of what did happen to those families who received any of that class settlement uh, under the Pigford lawsuit, uh, as well as trying to help our members better advocate for themselves in the policy arena through our Federation Advocacy Institute. Okay. So this advocacy is part of your job to try to make sure that the politicians understand where black farmers are and try to get exactly. the black farmers to advocate for themselves? 
That's exactly right. And so one of the tools that we use is our podcast, the Federation Conversation. And so I currently host that, but the the hope and the goal is that the members will take uh, more control and ownership over that podcast so that the, the entire community, the public, as well as elected officials can better understand the ongoing experiences uh, that these these communities face um, and in the struggles that they have to try to form cooperatives in states that don't have appropriate legislation to make that an easy process for, for the people that are in the communities that we serve. So the point of the Advocacy Institute is it's in line with the cooperative principles that the Federation was founded on and continues to practice. It's it's really the self-determination and the ownership of the means of change being in the hands of the membership. So it's interesting that when the Federation was birthed in 67, they were uh, incorporated in D.C. <laughs> D.C. law under Marion Barry had laws that helped form co-ops and they couldn't find that in the South anywhere in those 13 states, so they were formed with the D.C. law. Exactly, and a lot of people don't know that we are we're a foreign we're a foreigner in our own lands. You're a foreign corporation yes. in Georgia, right. in North and Carolina, South Carolina, Texas, <laughs> Louisiana. You're a foreign corporation. Got it. <laughs> yeah, because the laws are not there, and it, it's all it's like. White folks don't want us to vote, and they don't want us to be educated, okay? They don't want us to form co-ops. So anything they don't want is for the betterment of us, okay? Us voting, us getting an education, us forming co-ops is better for us as a whole. Where we learn, and what I like about co-ops, too, is the fifth principle, education, information, and training. That's in the grain and in the, in the DNA of co-ops is getting education, getting education, getting education. So that's why and I love I- co-ops, too. I will add that the National Co-op Bank and NCBA CLUSA, there are definitely lots of white folks who uh, play a huge role in the co-op community of creating space for the Federation and other uh, uh, cooperatives that want to participate in those spaces and, and have that vision, the cooperative vision for what this country could be like. And I, I think that we need to uplift those stories more of the ways in which uh, there are allies that understand um, what it means to pass the mic and what it means to not just take up all of that space where we definitely do need black leadership in our communities and we need black folks who are the most impacted by those decisions to be a part of those solutions. And that's what I think cooperatives, that's a promise of cooperatives for our communities. Uh, and I especially see a lot of promise in our rural communities for cooperatives to be a part of the solution of all of the, the things that we t- discussed earlier, all of the social determinants of health, all of the wealth disparities, all of the safety concerns. Uh, and, and I really do think that it integrates us back into a more community-focused ways of, of knowing and being that are more in line with our ancestral truths. So last week I had Emery Campbell on with the Gullah people of, of uh, South Carolina, St. Helena Islands, uh, Hilton Head, and he was talking about from Sierra Leone, they brought over this community, okay? Ubuntu, I am because Dania is, and Dania is because I am. And we work together to try to figure out how we lift up each other. Um, and that's where we come out of from Africa. In Southern Africa is Ubuntu also, the same kind of principle. So, yeah, getting back to that, getting back to our roots is what's so, so important to us. Totally agree with you. And I'm glad that you lift up their white folks, and there have been that have always helped us because the Underground Railroad was a cooperative of white people. They had the they had the resources. Okay. Absolutely, and and even in our efforts to intervene in this lawsuit, one of the coalitions we're a part of, the National Family Farm Coalition, there were white farmers writing op eds and getting them placed in their local papers because rural power. I think cooperatives. And rural power really scare the status quo and the establishment. Uh, because I think that when black and white sharecroppers were working together and, and black and white farmers were forming unions, that was a direct threat to white supremacist capitalism. And so there's, there's really a direct line between 
um, white supremacist capitalism and those symptoms that we were talking about, the, the race-based uh, ways of treating people, the assumptions about what black people can endure physically, um, whether or not we're entitled to anything from our government, whether or not we're entitled to any of the rights of citizenship. Uh, there, there's a direct correlation between uh, white supremacist capitalism and those ways of undermining the success of not just the black community, um, but the cooperative promise for the solutions to what ails us as a nation. And I think that we need to have more shows like yours, have more shows like like ours that are uplifting those those truths and, and talking to those people that are on the ground, seeing that there is a, a better way and a better path forward. And some of that comes from looking backward. Yes. We have over 250 shows on at our website, www.everything.coop, everything.coop. How do we find out your podcast? So our podcast is called The Federation Conversation, and you can find it on anchor.fm backslash Federation Conversation. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F as in Frank, M as in Mary, backslash Federation Conversation. Anchor, Anchor in the Boat, FM, backslash Federation Conversation. So what would you like to leave people with? You've said a lot today. It's been phenomenal on health, health disparities, black folks, farmers, starting with the health on good food and all of the different things that some white people, because there's some of them, some of them have been very, very helpful throughout the, the time, abolitionists. Um, so what, what would you like to leave people with? I'd just like to leave people with thinking about honoring Black History Month. My daughter and I are reading a lot about under underknown stories from Black history. Um, and I think that just getting that reminder, I, I have the luxury of working with an organization that realizes that every individual has a vote, every individual matters. And I really like to, to read about those women and those, those people who didn't need the accolades, they didn't need all of the attention or the awards and their names um, are not in the history books, but they changed America and we can too. We can change America. I appreciate that. We really can. Thank you, Dania, Davey. We look forward to have you on again. Everybody out there, thank you for listening today. <clears throat> we'll be back uh, next Thursday. In the meantime, we ask that you will understand that co-ops help people come out of poverty with dignity. Thank you. Live cooperatively. Your news talk station.